You are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Antidepressants are a multi-billion dollar business in America and around the world, and therein lies a big problem. Pharmaceutical companies and researchers are casting their nets too wide to find new patients calling normal, rational feelings a disease, says Dr. Gary Greenberg. Some simple sadness, the occasional melancholy is part of a normal life. Does getting rid of these feelings mean getting rid of the soul? Welcome to the Business of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Gary Greenberg, a psychotherapist and professor of psychology. His writing on science and public policy has appeared in The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, and Harper's. He is here to talk about his fascinating experience of participating in a clinical trial study and subsequent article entitled Manufacturing Depression. Welcome, doctor. Hi there. Gary, did you have an idea to write this article about the medical trial uh, before you signed up for the trial at Mass General? Oh, yeah. I've been um, reporting on antidepressants-related subjects, including clinical trials, for a few years now. And uh, although I hadn't, I didn't have a contract with Harper's when I, wrote, when I uh, entered the trial, I was, my idea was to find a way to participate in a clinical trial. That wasn't as easy as it might seemed to be because um, most of the trials, I was interested in exploring antidepressant trials. And most of the trials require you to have major depression, which as a therapist, I've always thought of as a fairly serious and not all that common um, problem. And uh, so study came available in which the diagnosis that was required was something called minor depression. It was a study of a drug called Celexa. Minor depression is a much lower bar than major depression in terms of the diagnosis. It only requires two out of the nine criteria for depression, uh, whereas major depression requires five. And, and I've never been the happiest camper in the world, I suppose. I'm not Mr. Optimistic or anything. So I went to Mass General thinking that I would get into the trial for minor depression. So what happened, Gary? Well, what happened is that I was given the standard diagnostic inventory, which is a hour and 15-minute long, more or less, uh, clinician-conducted oral interview, in which you're asked your history of things like your unhappiness and your sleeping and eating habits and other questions that are related to the nine criteria in the DSM. And when it was all over, the psychiatrist told me, to my great surprise, that I didn't qualify for the minor depression study because I had major depression. Wow. So how honest were you when you answered these questions? Well, consciously, I was as honest as I could be. And there's two problems here. One of them is that there's uh, something called, uh, well, we don't have to give it a technical name, there's unconscious bias. I mean, I was motivated to get into the trial probably no more or less motivated than a person who comes to a doctor with unhappiness is to try to convince the doctor that he's unhappy enough to warrant treatment. And so that, that's, that's a possibility. And being unconscious, I can't tell you that I know. I was working hard to try to be fair. The second problem is that some of the questions are very difficult to answer, surprisingly. Um, asking you to assess your level of, say, guilt or self-esteem or self-criticism is a very tricky business. Um, as an example, one of the questions in the inventory is about whether or not you think people are giving you a hard, have been giving you a particularly hard time recently. Now, I know as a clinician that that question is designed to assess levels of paranoia, and paranoia can be part of a picture of major depression. And I answered the question, no. However, in that, with that particular question, 
my job as a therapist in many ways is to let people give me a hard time and to work with it. So clearly the, the questions are structured in a way that assumes that you already, that the doctor already has an idea of whether or not you're well or sick to begin with. So it's, it's not the most straightforward way to find out if a person has a disease. Um, more to the point, if it can't distinguish between somebody who's got, let's say, an unconscious bias, or which I wasn't doing, lying, um, then how much of a disease is it? Well, it would also tap into your narcissism that people are uh, thinking about you, talking about you when they're not. Exactly. So, so right. I mean, it's a very, it, it, it's just a hard thing to do to ask a series of questions and determine a person's level of, of a disease. So fast forwarding, they, they actually did not find you minorly depressed. They found you majorly depressed. That's correct. And did you agree with that or did you think that was uh, ridiculous? It surprised me. It didn't strike me as ridiculous uh, in the sense that I had sort of decided to put my label in their hands. But on the other hand, it, it seemed intuitively um, wrong because I didn't present myself to them with a lot of tearfulness or a lot of, um, I wasn't terribly subdued. I didn't have the sort of presentation that I would expect as a clinician. You're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and I'm with Dr. Gary Greenberg, a psychotherapist and professor of psychology who recently participated in a drug clinical trial. Dr. Greenberg, do you think that the DSM is part of the problem that we are kind of medicalizing normal conditions? Yeah, I think that the construction of the DSM is, is highly uh, problematic in many ways, and that's one of them. It's not so much, it's, it's the possibility is always there. For instance, if we take something that we now call social anxiety disorder and at one time called social phobia and many years ago called shyness, there's an example of a condition that has been medicalized, and the reason it's been medicalized not to put too fine a point on it, the reason that it's been medicalized is because there's a drug that can treat it. The medical establishment creates a disease for the drug to cure, and that's a problem. Well, I think there's a lot of diseases that have been created by drug companies, not only in the psychiatric field. Uh, osteoporosis, for one, would be a condition that uh, they found a drug that worked for it, so now they created the disease and the awareness. Yes, and ultimately, perhaps all aging will become a disease. So tell me a little bit about the trial. What were your experiences? What did you find enjoyable? What were you shocked at? What were you disturbed with? Well, I think that the trial was um, sort of was surprisingly poorly conducted. There were procedural errors that were made from the beginning that given that I was at one of the world's leading hospitals uh, working for very, very good physicians, the things that happened were, were almost astounding. From the beginning when I was given the wrong consent forms and then the fact that I'd been given the wrong consent forms was uh, covered up um, to the end where I found out that the drugs that I'd been taking, I, they, they wouldn't tell me whether I was on the placebo or uh, the the treatment drug, and I sent my some uh, pills that I still had left. I had two days' worth of pills left. I sent them to a lab, and it turned out that one of the drugs was the placebo, and the other drug 
was neither the drug nor the placebo. It was very unlikely that they had two different kinds of placebos. And indeed, I called up Mass General and I said, what's the deal with this? And they told me that I asked them, do you check, do you test these drugs before you hand them out? And he said, no, we rely on the manufacturer. Well, it happens that I was on, a, on the drug I was on was an omega-3 fatty acid. Now, most pharmaceutical drugs they're going to hand out are indeed subject to regulation because of good manufacturing practices, I'm sure you know. But supplements, which is what the omega-3 fatty acids are, if you go to the doctor and tell them you're on supplements, the doctor's job is to tell you that you don't know what's in those supplements because they're not subject to regulation. And yet here they were giving them out without seeing if they were what they were supposed to be, which I found to be like, well, that's an amazing thing. In addition to that, I asked, how do you separate uh, regular dietary intake of omega-3? What about people who have more? And the answer was, well, uh, that's why we have a food diary. Didn't you fill out the food diary? Well, I had filled out the food diary, but I didn't fill it out until the fourth week of the study, by which time I was already enrolled and not, you know, not, I couldn't be washed out of the trial. So there were these procedural errors that I found really quite shocking. You know, they come up with all these different uh, tests for you to take, and then they'll pick whichever test pans out statistically to show that you've gotten better. Which, which one showed you got better? That would be the, the really dishonest way to do it. In fact, what they do is they use, largely use the same test in every study, which is the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale. And that was the scale on which my scores were going down. The other scales they gave me are for investigational purposes and so on. But the real gold standard test is the Hamilton. The Hamilton is 17 questions, 10 of which have to do with sort of neurovegetative symptoms, eating, sleeping, etc., and seven of which have to do with psychological uh, conditions. And those are assessed in a very strange way. They ask you, have you been feeling, for instance, they ask you, have you been feeling excessively self-critical over the last couple of weeks? And I finally asked one of the clinicians, well, what does this excessively mean compared to what? And she said, compared to when you're not depressed. But if the whole point is to assess whether or not you're depressed and the doctor is the person who knows that, then how is a person supposed to answer that question? It's completely impossible. Well, what do you use as a tool in your practice when you're trying to figure out if someone's depressed? Uh, I frankly don't feel that it's as crucial as we make it out to be in the mental health field to render um, precise diagnoses. So, you know, there's a range of depressive disorders from adjustment disorder with depressed mood all the way up to major depression, you know, uh, severe with psychotic features uh, or even bipolar disorder. And the range there all encompasses uh, levels of uh, unhappiness that people can present with. Why is it necessary to be precise in your diagnosis? Well, one reason is because you want to know whether the person's at risk. Well, you don't really need a diagnosis to know that. You just have to assess whether they're at risk. The depression diagnosis or the dysthymia diagnosis doesn't guarantee the person is not going to be suicidal. So you have to make these decisions and uh, assessments regarding levels of functioning and so on, but you don't need a diagnosis to do that. So you're using more of a clinical gestalt. I frankly think most practicing therapists do that, and when they have to make a diagnosis, it's for the insurance company. And then you make the diagnosis, depending on just how, what your attitude is toward that process, you make a diagnosis that's going to guarantee the best reimbursement. So in the trial, what was, what was the scariest discovery that you made? The scariest discovery that I made was probably the one I mentioned before, 
the one about the, sh- the shoddiness of it, because, and I would say overall, the, the sort of intellectual uh, house of cards that this whole thing is built on is frightening because of the extent to which people are subject to um, the results of studies like this. this is the, the study that I was in is a study that's modeled on exactly the way that antidepressants are approved for the market. Um, and there's a clear bias toward, A, recruiting patients, subjects who may not quite fit, but who the numbers can make it look like they fit, that would be me, and B, toward generating results that are going to be favorable to the drugs. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Gary Greenberg, for joining us today. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you have been listening to The Business of Medicine on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.